Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. about a walking tour of mountainous Albania. The daughter of writer Laura Ingalls Wilder, Lane was an American journalist, travel writer, novelist, and political theorist. over the blue, snow-crested mountains that are the southernmost slopes of the Dineric Alps, it made, on the scootery plain, a pattern of our shadows, shadows of four small wooden-saddled ponies, each led by a mountaineer with a rifle on his back, of two tall, ragged security officers, and of a small, trudging boy in a red Turkish fez all moving single file across an interminable plain, shaggy with blossoming cactus. The wooden saddles were three-sided boxes made of peeled branches, padded beneath with sheepskin. They fitted over the ponies' backs 
On top of them, our blankets were packed. Saddlebags hung from the four corners, enthroned in the midst we rode, comfortable as in an easy chair, sitting sideways, our knees crossed, smoking cigarettes and rocking gently with the pony's pace. And all this was to me an enchantment suddenly appearing above the surface of well-arranged days. As new South Sea islands rise before a mariner, in hitherto familiar waters. Three days earlier, the mountains of Albania, indeed, Albania itself, had been unknown to me and disregarded. I had meant to go by Scudery as a hurried walker brushes by the stranger on the street. Scudery had been merely a place to pass on the way to Constantinople. And now, in this brightening dawn, upon the Scudery Plain, I was riding to unknown adventure among the hidden tribes of that land. This was the doing of Frances Hardy. That impetuous and efficient girl had seized upon me and my small affairs as six months earlier she had seized upon the refugee situation in Scudery taking control, making adjustment, creating a new pattern. A thin, athletic, sun-browned girl, so full of energy that her very fingertips seemed to crackle electrically. That was Frances Hardy. An Albaniac, I called her at our first meeting, perceiving that one might disagree with her, argue with her, even poke fun at her and still be her friend. She had seized on the word with delight, the perfect word, she said, and had returned at once to her attack. Constantinople's nothing. Everyone goes to Constantinople. But if you don't see Albania, you're wasting the chance of a lifetime. Up in those mountains, right up there in those mountains, a day's journey from here, the people are living as they lived 20 centuries ago, before the Greek or the Roman or the Slav was ever known. There are prehistoric cities up there, old legends, songs, customs that no one knows anything about. No strangers ever even seen them. Great Scott woman, and you sit there and talk about Constantinople. But if nobody goes there, how can we do so? I said. How does anyone ever do anything? Simply do it. Hire horses, get on them, and go. Carrying our own guns? Oh, we'll be safe enough. We may run into a blood feud or two, but nobody ever harms a woman. Nobody even shoots a man in her presence. She means no Albanian ever does, said Alex. Bless him, said Francis, and added, in Albanian, glory to their feet. I had the vaguest notion of Albania. I knew it was the smallest and newest member of the League of Nations. I knew it was in the Balkan Wars. And I knew that recently the Albanians had driven from their shores the Italian army of occupation. 
If someone, testing my intelligence or psychoanalyzing, had said to me, Albanians? I should have replied, bandits. But Francis Hardy is irresistible in more ways than one. Therefore, on this spring morning, while mists rose slowly from the blue waters and the shadows of the mountains retreated from its shores, we were riding northward toward the lands of the mountain tribes. There were four of us, not counting our retainers. No, five. For at the last moment, small, chubby-cheeked Rex, in his red, Mohammedan fez, had gravely engaged Francis Hardy in argument as to the desirability of his accompanying us. Twelve years old, a staunch Mohammedan, self-adopted father of seven smaller refugee children for whom he maintained a family life in a hut he had found, he had made all arrangements for the trip without consulting us. He said that he had never seen the mountains and that he thought it necessary to learn about them as part of the education of a good Albanian. He pointed out that he spoke excellent English, which he had learned in some three months of association with Miss Hardy, and that he would be valuable as an interpreter. It was true that we had one interpreter, but there were six men and many saddlebags. He would keep an eye upon them all the care of his children he had arranged for. As to the Mohammedan school in which he was a pupil, it taught him nothing. He would take a vacation from it. He would be of use to us upon the trip. The trip would be of value to him. Having said this, he gravely awaited Miss Hardy's decision. When she said, All right, Rex, he permitted himself to smile and looked over the packs, suggesting some changes that would make us more comfortable. He now walked behind Miss Hardy's pony, a pistol and a knife in the belt of his American pajama coat. Happy office man off for a lazy vacation. Just the same, I wondered a bit, taking everything into consideration. It cannot be said that I was entirely unprepared for the interesting developments before us. Also in our party was Alex. Sunshiny hair, softly fluffed wide blue eyes, and that complexion of pink and white like roses painted on a china plate. It drives a dagger of envy into every feminine heart and makes the fortunes of cosmetic makers. She wore a purple tam, a leaf-brown sweater with a purple tie, and the trimmest of riding trousers. She looked like a magazine cover. She was in reality the most hard-headed, soberly sensible of girls, to her fingertips an anti-Potterite. She and Francis were going into the mountains to decide where to establish three schools. They had themselves collected in America the money for them, and this was their vacation from Red Cross work. At about noon, we left the plane 
and almost at once our ponies began to stand up like pet dogs begging for cake, their hind legs supporting their weight while front hoofs pawed for foothold above on the stair-like rocky trail. An Albanian held each of us tightly, by elbow or knee, ready to save us from squashy death if the pony lost its balance. And as the little animals strained, clambered, gathered their feet together for desperate leaps, a sudden long high wail broke forth ahead. The two security officers were singing. Walking easily up a trail that I could have overcome only on hands and knees, carrying their rifles and twenty pounds of canned goods on their backs, they were merrily singing. Thumbs pressed tightly against their ears to prevent the air pressure of their lungs from bursting ear drums, they sent far over the crags the long, shrill, high notes like nothing human I had ever heard. Frances Hardy, lying almost perpendicular along her pony's back, her chin on what would have been the saddle pommel had there been one, looked downward at me, similarly extended. They're making a song to the road of the mountaineers, she said. That's Mount Chaffa up there. We're going over it today, and then we'll be in the mountains. Aren't you happy? I could find no word emphatic enough for reply as I gazed up at the tiny notch in a wave of snow crest that curled against the sky 5,000 feet above us. The sun swung to its highest and sank again while we climbed. It was low in the sky. It seemed on a level with us. When we made the last hundred yards up into the Chaffa, we were in the sky. There is no other way to say it, and no way in which to describe that sensation of infinite airiness. Forty miles behind and below us, Lake Scudery lay flat, like a pool of mercury on a gray-brown floor. At each side of our little gay-colored cavalcade, a gray cliff rose perhaps two hundred feet, too sheer to hold the snow that thickly crested its top. These cliffs were the posts of a gateway through which we looked into the country of the hidden tribes. I had never seen or dreamed such mountains like thin, sharp rocks stood on edge. They covered hundreds of miles with every variation of light and shadow. And we looked across their tops to a faraway wave of snow that broke high against the sky. The depths between the mountains were hazy blue 
out of the blueness, sharp cliffs and huge flat slopes of rock thrust upward, streaked with the rose and purple and Chinese green of decomposing shale. And from their tops, a thousand streams poured downward, threading them with silver white. A low, continuous murmur rose to us, the sound of waterfalls, softened by immeasurable distances. Suddenly, clear and very far and thin, a call came out of the spaces. It was like a fife, and yet not like it. Instantly, our guides were still, attentive. A moment of silence, and farther and thinner, hardly to be heard above the beating of blood in our ears, there was an answer. Then the first note began again and went on and on. There seemed to be a pattern to it, not a tune, words. I looked at the others. Little Rex, his round face intent beneath the red fez, his mouth slightly open, his eyes wide and blank, was an image of concentrated listening. The two security officers stood alert, like dogs straining at a leash, scenting something. Our four guides, in their long white trousers, black jackets, colored turbans and sashes, were like men frozen in attitudes of interrupted talk. What was it? I cried to Paroli, whose horse was slipping down the trail ahead, kept from going headlong by its owner, who held it by the tail, bracing his bare feet on every foothold. Telephoning, said Paroli. It's the way they send news through the mountains. A man on one of the peaks calls and another one somewhere hears him and answers. You've seen them hold their ears and throw their voices, that's it, and three shots to show that the talks ended. What was he saying? Something about Shala. Shala and Soshi are in blood, evidently. Do we go through those tribes? My horse slipped just then, and a man snatched me from the saddle. The horse, held by the tail, floundered on the trail, striking sparks from his hoofs, shod with solid thin plates of steel. The packs went over his head. My man sent me on a shoulder-high rock and dashed to the aid the rescue. The horse got his footing and stood trembling, his head covered 
with streaming blankets. I said then that I would walk, but it was not walking. It was jumping, scrambling, dropping. Those mountains were evidently created to be looked at, not to be walked upon. Bathed in perspiration, I stopped from time to time to eat a bit of snow, and 12-year-old Rex looked at me with compassion. He had walked nearly 20 miles that day and was still gay and fresh. The men were still singing. In a minute, Mrs. Lane, we will come to a resting place. The pitying Rex encouraged me, and in perhaps half an hour, my trembling legs brought me around a boulder to see the two security officers stopped in the trail. Below our feet, the cliffs fell away, down into blue haze. Above us were forested slopes, and above them, sheer great cliffs, throwing shadows across a dozen valleys. Our small grassy knoll was white with daisies and with fallen petals from a blossoming apple tree that arched above the cross. On it, our men lay at ease, beautiful, graceful, their rifles swung from their shoulders and laid ready to their hands. Why are Shala and Soshi in blood? Francis asked, casually, biting idly at the stem of a daisy. Do we go through both tribes? I wanted to know. Through Shala. Soshi's farther down the river. We'll go around it. Are our men Shala or Soshi? Our guide glanced at them. Shala, by the pattern of the braiding on their trousers. So we don't have any trouble. Hello. That's a Soshi man coming up the trail now. It was Alex who acted quickest. She was sitting on a rock beside me, her arms clasped about her knees. She rose instantly and flinging out a hand in the gesture of greeting, cried in her most feminine voice those Albanian words that sound like tune yet yetta and mean may you live long. The Shoshi man's hand was on his rifle, but his step had not faltered. He replied, coming on steadily, and the appropriateness of the greeting struck me. For if it had not been uttered by a woman, he would at that moment have been dead. Our Shalaman, with perfect courtesy, went through the formalities of greeting on the trail, and this is the form translated to me by Rex. Long life to you, and to you long life. How could you, meaning how could you get here? Slowly, slowly, little by little. 
No one who has ever seen those trails can doubt it. The Shoshi man sat down. Our men offered him cigarettes, and up the trail came a woman of Shoshi. She wore a tight, bell-shaped skirt of horizontal black and white stripes, made of cloth heavier and thicker than felt. The twelve-inch-wide marriage belt of heavy leather studded with pounds of nails and a jacket covered with three-inch thick fringe. Two heavy braids of black hair hung forward on her chest. A colored handkerchief was bound around her head, and her face, smoothly weather-browned, large-eyed, delicately shaped, was the most beautiful that I had ever seen. On her back, held by woven woolen straps that crossed between her breasts, was a cradle tightly covered by a thick blanket. In one hand, she held a bunch of raw wool, and from the other dangled a whirling spindle. Her feet were bare, and as she came up that trail, which had exhausted me, she sang softly to herself, dexterously spinning thread from the bunch of wool. Cherimi, our happier security officer, rose quickly and went to meet her. He took her by the hand and laid his cheek caressingly against hers. He was like a child. Cherimi, with his happy face, deep wrinkled with laughter, the mischievous twinkle in his eyes, his bursts of wit and song. But he looked all of his forty years as he gazed tenderly at the woman of Soshi. She is a woman of my people, he said, leading her gallantly to us. Are you a woman? said Francis Hardy, correctly, in Albanian. I am born of Shala, married in Shoshi, she answered. Her voice was soft, and her hands and feet would have been madness to a sculptor. In any Paris restaurant, those slender fingers, almond nails, and delicate wrists, aristocratic, would have been a sensation. We admired the baby, excavating it from five folds of blankets to do so. Eighteen, she said, and she had been married three years. And have you been home since? Ah, no, she said, with a wistful smile. Born in Shala, said Jeremy, but she was married in Choshi and in Choshi she will die. I wonder what she thinks of us, I said, for though she must have felt great curiosity about these strange beings, dropped apparently from the sky upon her well-known trails, she did not reveal it by the flicker of an eyelash. 
and she asked no questions. It was we who were so rude. How old do you think we are? Frances asked her. She looked at us candidly, beneath her long lashes. How can I say? She answered. I cannot read or write. I gather wood. The Shershi man now rose, slinging his rifle back on his shoulder, and said farewell. Go on a smooth trail, said our men, and he went on up the trail without turning his head, the woman following him. Well, we must be getting on, said our guide. We have a long way to go, and we ought to get in before dark. And he showed us, far away, across the darkening valley, the white dot that was the priest's house where we were to spend the night.